turn with me in your copies of God's Word, if you would, to Psalm 45. That's the 45th Psalm. And we'll commence our reading there with the superscription. Psalm 45. Hear once again the word of our God. To the chief musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashkil, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of justice, because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless us under it this evening. We come to a text, as I've said to you now several weeks, a text that sets before us the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, I could say to you this evening how needful it is for the world to see what we have in our text. And it would be right for me to do so. But how needful is it for a people who are coming into the courts of the Lord, people who are coming into the worship of God solemnly, coming into that place where Christ has promised he himself would be, as the book of Revelation has it, showing us that he stands among the candlesticks, judging them as they approach him. I say, friend, How needful is it for us, who this very evening come so close to Christ, to see Christ right, to see him as he comes to us in this text. Beloved, our need is so great, if only we felt it so. And so as we have seen, the Christ in Psalm 45, the Christ whom we approach even in this evening hour, is a Christ of glory. He is the king of glory that the psalmist has in view. And he is, as we saw in the second verse, a fair king. In fact, a king who is peerless in his beauty, peerless in his glory. But as we come to our text this evening, which is the third verse of Psalm 45, we find that the psalmist supplies for us yet another description of this king. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, almost mighty with thy glory and thy majesty. Have you note that as the psalmist sets this king before our gaze as the inspired penman, he does so by issuing out a command. 
really a call. The third verse here is in the imperative. Gird thy sword on thy thigh. It's the psalmist's great desire. He longs to see this king take up his sword. And of course, friend, it's important for us to note here that it's the sword that he desires Christ to take upon himself. Not the scepter. The scepter comes in verses 4 and 5. But the first thing that we're drawn to in this text, and really the only thing in this third text, third verse, is the sword. Now, standing alone with the sword could indicate, of course, regal beauty. But here, as it stands beside the scepter, it is most certainly supposed to be taken as a symbol of war. And really, that's the idea behind the call. When the psalmist says, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, his cry is really, in its broadest sense, go to war. And then he gives us an appellation. He gives us a description of Christ, which really functions as a name. Almost mighty. What's striking here is that this, again, of course, is an address to Christ. But in the text, it functions not so much as a description as it does a name. In fact, in the original, it simply reads, mighty. The call is to Christ, but as it were, the psalmist has named him, mighty, with a capital M. And then you have that next description, that third section of our text, with thy glory and thy majesty. The word with there is supplied in our translation. And so really, the sense is, is that the psalmist is describing for us the sword. He's describing for us the kind of weapon that the psalmist has called Christ to take upon himself. One of glory and majesty. Holding all of this together, that we could paraphrase the text in this way. We could say, the psalmist is crying, take up your sword in readiness for battle, almighty one. That glorious and majestic sword. Now friend, holding that together, we of course see this text as it sets before us symbols. And of course the symbol here is one of war. We have a warrior king in our text. And we can't miss that. There are commentators throughout the running centuries who have tried to apply this to Solomon. Uh, But friend, of course, Solomon, whose very name is Peace, who has promised that he would not see war in his reign, is simply not found here. No, the son of David that's in view is a warrior king who is one of peerless beauty and of peerless strength. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we're drawn to this text this evening, it's important to understand that the primary image, the symbol that the psalmist sets before us is that of the sword. And it's right for us, it's necessary for us to ask, well, what is the sword? What is that which the psalmist primarily has in view? And friend, I think it's useful at this point for me to tell you that, of course, the scriptures will use symbols quite often to communicate truths to us. Symbols in the scripture are used to help our distracted, our slow minds, to, with the use of temporal things, to lift our gaze higher to see spiritual truths. It's an act of condescension. And because that's the case, friend, we need to recognize that symbols do have a definite meaning. Too often, I think, when we think of symbols in the scriptures, 
Often, especially in our generation, we think there's of an indefinite number of possible interpretations. But no, friend, this is an act of condescension to teach us real truth. And so it's for us to understand what truth is primarily in view. And to do so, we need to remember, of course, that Scripture is its best interpreter. It's necessary for us always to look at how the Scriptures use these symbols in order for us to understand them in our own text. And so take the sword. Take the sword of Psalm 45.3. And note just what we read from Isaiah 11 just a few moments ago. There Christ is promised to do, do this. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Take Isaiah 49, speaking of Christ again. In the words of Christ that we have, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand hath He hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In His quiver hath He hid me. And so unsurprisingly, when we come to the book of Revelation, we find these words spoken of Christ. Out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 1.16 And then... Of course, in that context, you remember the sword that goes out of his mouth primarily is, are those addresses to the seven churches. Words you can interpret as being words of gospel, words of chastening, but issued from grace. But then take the text that we read from Revelation 19. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. There you have, of course, that word, a word of judgment. And so holding all of these themes together, one of the prevailing ideas throughout the scriptures of Christ as he holds the sword is Christ as he speaks. Christ as he functions as a prophet. As he gives both a word of gospel and also a word of judgment. In fact, we can apply it both to gospel and to judgment because this is precisely how the word of God is described indiscriminately. You remember Hebrews 4. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, friend, we could narrow this text, as some might, and say that this is primarily the word of judgment that is issued out from, the, from, from Christ in our text. That's the sword in view. But I think it's right for us to take it as the entire word of God. And hopefully we'll see that with God's help in the time to come. But what is then the sword? Friend, Old Testament and New Testament alike primarily have the word of Christ as that sword which Christ takes up. Takes up in judgment, takes up as he deals with his churches, the word of God in its totality that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when the psalmist says, gird thy sword on thy thigh, the cry really is, go to battle with thy glorious, majestic word, almighty one. Now, friend, the theme that we gain from this is very simple. In fact, it seems almost so simple we, we wouldn't even need to say it, but it's crucial. It's that very theme that the psalmist insists on this third verse. And that is that the scriptures are Christ's glorious, majestic word. I want us to see this in relation to the one who is its director. Then, 
but what, then how it is described, and lastly, in what way it's desired. And so take, first of all, the one by whom it is directed. The call here is, gird thy sword on thy thigh, O most mighty. Friend, that appellation, that address to Christ is striking, and it really demands our attention first of all. In the second verse, you remember, as I've said to you already, the psalmist is quick to tell us that the Christ whom he has in view is peerless in his beauty. Of all the sons of Adam, none compare to him. None are like him. Well, then as he comes to the third verse, he simply says, he is mighty. As though that were his name. As though that is really the definition of all strength, of all power. He is mighty. The word in verse 2 is spoken by one of peerless grace, of peerless beauty. But now the psalmist reminds us that this word is also directed with peerless strength. He who wields this sword is mighty, is omnipotent itself. And friend, of course, this reminds us that the psalmist has in view the efficacy of this word under the hand of this warrior king. And the theme that we draw from that even is just this, that the scriptures are indeed wielded effectively by Christ. He is omnipotent, and so what he would accomplish with his word, he does, because none can stay his hand. But friend, I want you to notice here, as we look at this third verse, the temptation might be to, to ask the question, well, well, how is this word effectively wielded by Christ? And, and I'd submit to you that really the fourth verse, the verse after our text, answers that. What's, primary in view, what's primarily in view in verse 3 is just this, that that power by which the sword is wielded is omnipotent. Now, friend, as you think of the scriptures being wielded, the scriptures themselves hold out all kinds of ways, all kinds of other people have wielded them. The scriptures, says Peter, are wielded by unstable and unlearned men. And to what end? The apostle goes on to write, they are rested unto their own destruction. They take it upon themselves to wield the word of God. And here is how it ends with them. It's rested unto their own destruction. It was taken up by the Pharisees, of course. Christ says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. It's as much an imperative as it is a description. They were given oft to thinking about the word of God. They often had it set before them. Whole schools were built just that they might record them. And then here's Christ's conclusion. Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. For all of their wielding of the scriptures, it ends for themselves only in death. Only Christ, friend, can say, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. All of those other uses are ineffectual, but Christ's, Christ is always efficacious. Mighty is he who wields the scriptures in our text.
Friend, I'd have you remember how the apostle describes the effectual use of the, of the scriptures. Take it positively. See the king wielding the sword that he has in his hand in our text as he rides through Thessalonica. See this king of glory, this one of peerless beauty and of peerless strength, riding through a Gentile city. Here's how the apostle describes it. Ye Thessalonians received the word of God which ye heard of us. Ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Who wielded that sword in Thessalonica? Who wielded it so that it would be efficacious against once an idolatrous people? That they might actually be effectually made saints. Well, friend, it could only be the Christ in our text. The one who is mighty. The one who is stronger even than man's rebellion. The one who's stronger than even man's ignorance. That's one way in which the king of glory wields the sword. But take another. To the prophet Isaiah... He who sits upon the throne, proclaimed thrice holy, says thus, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. To his prophet he says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Well, friend, how, how different is this wielded sword in Isaiah's day. In Thessalonica, it was a word that was effectually used to bring souls to saving knowledge of Christ. In Isaiah, it's a word, and these are the very words of the prophet, that, are, that would make their ears heavy and shut their eyes. It would come to them as a word of hardening. The friend Mark, that in both cases, it is Christ who wields sword. It is Christ who has taken this sword upon himself. In grace and in judgment, this sword is wielded so that none can stay his hand. Friend, you think about one who might control the level of a dam, how much water is retained in it. That one has control, how much water goes out and, and runs through the community, how much water is retained. Friend, our text holds out that Jesus Christ, the Mighty One, is the one who alone wields the sword effectually. He is the one who, if you like, opens the floodgates of grace by it, that people may be prosperous, people may be refreshed. And he is also the one who only has the key to shut it, so that it would do them no good. He is mighty, who holds this sword. And friend, if this is the case, if it's the case that all efficacy with regard to the word of God only flows from Christ, friend, what implications does that have for us even this evening? How do you respond when folks come to you and say, I read the scriptures, but I don't seem to be profiting from them. I hear sermons, but I seem to glean nothing. I think perhaps our first response is to say, well, well, you're probably not preparing as you should be, or, or you're, you're giving yourself over to all kinds of distractions. 
or, or such like. And in a sense, of course, there is a ring of truth to that response. But friend, do we not in Scripture have cases where souls that once heard the Scriptures and had twisted them according to their own traditions were immediately arrested by this king, immediately pulled out of their ignorance, pulled out of their misuse of the Scriptures, in a moment by this king, transformed under the effectual influence of this word. Do we not have cases in Scripture and in history where great and ignorant men and women who who could hardly receive any instruction from any other source were suddenly lightened by the grace of God under this word and profited richly? In all of those cases, don't we see an omnipotent Christ overcoming rebellion, overcoming ignorance, the mighty one who is able as he wills, to apply the word in spite of all of man's sin, lack of preparation, ignorance, and rebellion. And so, friend, what do we say to that one who says, I don't profit from the word of God? It very well may be that you're not prepared. It may be that you are giving yourself over to distractions. But, friend, remember this that if you do not profit from the word of God, it is because Christ has not brought it to you. And that in an act of judgment. Certainly, my dear friend, as we think of this text, this should produce in us a holy anxiety. We can use the means, but if we do not seek its efficacy and its blessing from Christ, beloved, we should expect no good thing. And if we do not profit under the word, we should lament our sin, certainly. But we should be a people who are reminded that it is Christ, Christ to whom we should go, pleading that he would open the floodgates once more. He is the one who wields the sword. He alone makes us profit under it. He alone brings it to bear upon the heart. And if we would have such among us, friend, a holy, a sanctified anxiety is wholly appropriate as we go to him in prayer, pleading that he would wheel it as he did in Thessalonica for our good and for his glory. This is the one who directs this sword. The friend, we have this sword also described for us in this text. As I said to you, those words, glory and majesty, really belong to the sword. The sword is glorious. Striking about this is no other part of Scripture shows an inanimate object being so described. And in fact, it's always the case that any object that is described as being glorious is immediately, immediately attributed to Jehovah. It is he who possesses it. This sword is glorious. The word glory there being weighty, that is divine glory set before us. It is majestic. And the word majestic there has behind it the idea of something that is adorning or beautifying. And what you have then, friend, here is an unparalleled instance, really, in the scriptures. 
Something that describes only possessions that belong to God. Which reminds us, of course, that it is Christ who is in view, who is God-man. But it teaches us that the scriptures are, in some sense, Christ's glorious and adorning word. And I think it's right for us at this moment, though it might be a wee bit of a bypath, to say that liberals accuse us, we who believe in biblical inerrancy and infallibility, of what they call blasphemously bibliolatry. They say we think too highly of the word of God. Well, friend, look at the scriptures as the Spirit describes this word in Christ's hand. It is a glorious and a majestic word. We take the scriptures as means, but don't miss this. The scriptures themselves are held out to us as glorious means. Means that are majestic. And so it's right for us not to worship, of course, the means, but to recognize that God has especially set before us this means, glorious and majestic. And take even Psalm 138 that we sang to that end. The words are, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now, the translation is a bit difficult there. Uh, the work that translators do is, is not necessarily easy when we come to that second verse of Psalm 138. But I think with Calvin, the right understanding of that text is this. We could translate it, Thou hast magnified thy name above all things by thy word. I think that's legitimate translation from the original. And Calvin's point, of course, is that the word of God is a powerful means by which the glory of God is manifest. It's in the word of God that we see conspicuously and most brilliantly that God has set his name above all things. We see it in a murky way in the book of nature, but gloriously in the scriptures. It's a singular means then. A singular means that sets before us wonderfully glory, the glory of God revealed. It is a glorious and a majestic sword. Friend, the question that does come from us in this moment is, is this how you and I from the heart describe this word? When you and I think of the word of Christ as we have it really in front of us, even this evening, are these the appellations that we would give to it? Would we describe the word of God as glorious and majestic? Or maybe perhaps we could ask it another way. Do we long to see divine glory? Do we long to see the glory of our triune God in greater ways? The next obvious question is, well, what do you do with the word? If this is the glorious and majestic means which Christ wields, it's entirely right for us to ask the question, well, what what do I do with this word? Beloved, I've encountered many who said I would love to know Christ. Many who would say I would see Christ by faith. Many who would say "I, I long to see more and more of the glory of God. The very next question that needs to be impressed on our hearts as we ourselves say this is what then have I done with his word? Do I cherish this word that holds out these very things to me. The psalmist will not allow us to think about the sword alone. 
he would remind us the kind of sword that it is. Urge us to cherish it if we would really adore the king who wields it. Would you see Christ, friend? This word, this word must never be far from you. But thirdly and finally, as we close, I want you to notice, beloved, as we said at the very onset, this whole third verse comes to us in the imperative. It comes to us as a call on the part of the psalmist. And it comes to us then expressive of the psalmist's desire. The idea is, it's really a cry, set forth thy glory and majesty by thy word. And you see, friend, how then the psalmist thinks about this word. It says so much, doesn't it, about the glory of the king and how much he loves the glory of this one. But it also says much about what he thinks of the sword, of the means. He longs to see it set forward effectually so that the glory and the majesty of this king would be made conspicuously known. Friend, that's precisely what the Christian longs to see, isn't it? The Christian longs to see divine glory in the efficacious use of Scripture. I mean, the deepest cry of the Christian, is it not, is is not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy truth's sake. It is, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, let thy glory and be above all the earth. That's the primal cry, if you will. That's the inmost desire of the believer. But how does that translate in relation to the word of God? Let me just read to you two texts. Here's how the apostle puts it. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. He's writing to the Thessalonians. That, that, that people who are once given heartily to idolatry. He's saying, we long and pray that it would indeed flourish as it has among you in other places. And note, it's striking here, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, that the glory of it would be manifest. This is the Apostle's prayer. The Apostle calls for all kinds of prayers throughout the Scriptures. But beloved, don't you see that this really runs right through and is the bottom of them all? As he asks for the increase of Christ's kingdom, this is what his cry is. Let the, free, let the word of the Lord have free course. But, but take this even by experience. Take, take from the book of Acts how this, how this is actually applied. When the Gentiles heard, they were glad, strikingly, and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Note what the inspired historian sets, sets before us. They received the word of God, and here was their response. Striking. They glorified the word of the Lord. They exalted in the, in the God of glory who is revealed in this word. They rejoiced in the means. They saw this word precisely as the psalmist sees it. A means that is glorious and majestic because it sets before us in the clearest way the glory of our God. And even more, and even more to the point, the glory of our God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Friend, do you see this? Do you see how the scriptures present believers as being deeply affected 
with the highest reverence for the Scriptures. There are people really touched by this word. And again, I could direct you to all of Psalm 119 at that end. They think highly of the means. Now friend, as we close, it does remind us in this text that high views of Christ necessarily require high views of Scripture. The two are inseparable. They must and they always will go hand in hand. A truly high view of the Scriptures necessitates a high view of Christ and vice versa. And so the question is, would you know this Christ? Would you know this Christ? This follow-up is always then of necessity. Well, then how, how do you use this word? Do you long for your families to know this word? Or perhaps, put it another way, do you long for your families to know Christ? What place does the word of God have in that home? That sword that Christ powerfully wields, where is it in the home? Do you wish to know Christ in your private place, in quiet? What use do you have for the word of God? Do you wish to keep Christ with you the day through? How far are you from the word of God, at least in your thoughts, at any point in the day? But we can even ask a follow-up, can't we? Really, the second question is perhaps more pertinent given our text. Not only how do you use the word, but what do you think of the word itself? Familiarity does not always equal reverence. It's not enough just to have the book opened. Not enough even just to be reading it daily. What's requisite is to have a heart that longs for the God who is revealed therein. What is required is of us to use this word as it sets before us a God of glory revealed to us in nature and powerfully in the gospel. What do you think of this word? Friend, there is a word of consolation that we can't miss from this text. The efficacy of this word depends upon the one whose name is mighty. Not you. Not you. Now friend, that means then that our Christ is able to bound over your heart, your cold heart, your dim mind, your wearied eyes, and be gracious to you. Our Christ is mighty who wields the sword. And friend, for those who are seeking Christ and more of Christ, this is a boon of comfort, isn't it? This Christ can even overcome my hard heart, can cut through the callousness of my own soul and really do good to me in spite of all sin. It's a blessed thing that he who wields scripture is mighty. My friend, I would close with just one exhortation. Do you desire Christ? Do you desire your homes to be filled with him?
Friend, use it. And use it often. If you would encounter this Christ, if you would know him as we ought to know him, you can never be far from that means that he powerfully uses. Never should be far from that great, that primary, ordinary means by which he grants grace to his people. And then, friend, as we use this word, how needful is it that we ask a blessing upon it? The sword will be of no use to us unless it is in Christ's hand. And so it should be the cry of the psalmist, take it up. Every time we approach the word of God, either privately, in family, or in public worship, our cry ought to be that Christ himself would take it up, not we ourselves. We are to be those then who read the word Coram Deo, always in the face of God, as though God himself, Jesus Christ, were standing here, speaking these words to us particularly. It's necessary for us so to read it. And then, beloved, as we read, it's right for us to humbly, but nonetheless really, expect much. If the Lord Jesus Christ, if he wills to do me good by this word, there is none that can stay his hand. Friend, this is a picture of our warrior king. Our warrior king, not only as he's of peerless beauty, but as he's of peerless strength. As he holds a word, the very word that's set before us this evening, as the Almighty One. And beloved, the call then for us, as we close really, is that we would take hold of this Christ, plead with him to take up this powerful means and use it mightily and graciously among us. And may he do so even this night. Amen.